This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 60 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Rachel Drury, the founder and CEO of Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is a subscription-based food startup that sells healthy and convenient frozen smoothies, bowls, plant-based milks, soups, flatbreads, and more. Daily Harvest helps you stock your home with delicious clean food that's created with real fruits and vegetables designed to keep up with your busy lifestyle. In this episode, Rachel shares with us her journey from growing up as the youngest of five with entrepreneurial parents, to working at American Express and Gill Group, to realizing there was a lack of healthy and convenient food options, which sparked the idea for Daily Harvest. She talks with us about how she got her business off the ground, the challenges she faced along the way, how she raised over $43 million from investors, and how she managed to build a profitable business that reached over $250 million in revenue in 2020. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your inspiring story and building Daily Harvest. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So where are you from originally? I'm from New York. New York, bred and born. Oh my gosh. Nice. Um, What was it like growing up in New York? Um, Well, I was in and out of the city. So, you know, part of me feels like um, I was exposed to a lot at an early age. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I also had the benefit of, um, you know, the, the more like sleepy suburban uh, upbringing as well. So, you know, I feel, I feel grateful for having both experiences and, um, you know, they were very starkly different, but great in aggregate. (laughs) Yeah. Did you have any siblings growing up and uh, what did your parents do? Yeah. I'm the youngest of five. Wow. Uh, That's a big family. Yeah, we're more of a litter than than really a family. <laughs> uh, four girls and a boy, um, and both of my parents were actually entrepreneurs. So, really? um, yeah, my mom has still to this day um, a chemical company, and my father had a, a wallpaper and paint company. Wow. And so, were you kind of helping them at an early age, or what was your involvement or you know introduction to entrepreneurship like? Yeah, I mean, our dinner table conversation was probably unlike most dinner table conversations. Yeah. Um, my parents would just talk about business and with zero uh, background or credibility, mm-hmm. <laughs> my siblings and I would just chime in all the time and we would ask questions. My parents welcomed it. Um, 
but we we really got into everything from financing to challenges with with team members to um, partnerships, everything. I can I can kind of look back and and um, you know recognize a lot of the experiences that I've had over the past few years are very similar to those that my parents had, and it's honestly been. Um, it's it's made it's made this whole thing feel less lonely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and as a kid being introduced so young to entrepreneurship and having two parents that were entrepreneurs, did you grow up wanting to be one too and start your own business? Or what did you want to be when you grew up? So I did. Um, and it's a strange thing to say when you are um when you are growing up, like one day I want to I want to start a business. And that that's like at that time, they weren't considered entrepreneurs. They were considered small business owners. Yeah. <laughs> Just a different time. Um, but it was something that I always wanted. And the reason why is because I felt like as a child, my parents just were so passionate about what they were doing. And I could see it like, mm. you know, I saw some of my friends' parents and they would come home from work and be just completely exhausted. And, you know, I saw my parents coming home from work being just alive and so excited about what they did every day. Um, not only that, but selfishly as a child, I loved that, you know, if I had a recital or if I had um, whatever, my mm -hmm. mom was always there for me. Because she could be, she kind of made her own hours and, you know, she would be on a, a work call, um, driving me to wherever I needed to be. Or if mm -hmm. I was at a regatta, cause I was a rower, um, she would be on work calls the entire, like six hour drive up to Saratoga. Wow. Um, but she was able to be there, which to me as a, as a kid was very special. Mm, that's awesome. So you were a rower. What other sports did you do? Yeah. Um, so I played tennis and I rode, um, but I kind of put all of my attention in the later years of my, I'll call it an athletic career. I'm putting that in quotes. You can't see them, but, um, <laughs> was definitely all in on rowing for all of the seasons. Wow. That's awesome. And so did you, how did you think about college or school Were did your parents kind of say you should definitely go to school in order to be an entrepreneur where you're like, Hey, mom and dad, I don't think I need that to be a, a, an entrepreneur. What were your thoughts of going to college? Yeah. Um, I definitely, I was excited about college. Um, I, I've always been very curious about things. And for me, I just felt like there was so much more to learn. And I had even from I mean, five years, six, seven years old, I had a million business ideas and I was always doing things like selling, um, sand crabs on the beach when people could clearly That's find pets. themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they made great pets. Right. Um, they die in 24 hours, but anyway, uh, <laughs> selling sand crabs on the beach to, you know, in college trying to, I came up with this like storage idea. Um, but you know, I just felt like I had so much more to learn before I would have the confidence to actually do it. And that had a lot to do with where I went to school and why I went to graduate school. For me, it was really about how do I um, check boxes that build confidence in myself? It had nothing to like, I didn't learn anything in college or, or honestly, even in business school that has helped. Um, but it's really, it was really for me about, about confidence and also realizing that, um, there are a lot of people out here, out there that don't know what they're doing and make things up. So mm -hmm. like, I don't know, that was kind of a box I needed to check to, to like, see that in reality. That makes sense. Yeah. That's so interesting how you say that check boxes that build confidence if school and kind of building those skills and learning things at school were helping to build confidence. What other check boxes do you think there were that you kind of, um, you know, did or built upon to build that confidence? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I went to university of Pennsylvania, which is a very finance heavy school. All of my friends went into finance after school. Um, I went into marketing because that's where my interest was. And uh, after that, I felt like my finance friends knew something that I didn't know. It was probably because I went to Penn and they were all finance friends. Um, but, 
you know, really feeling like they knew something that I didn't um, is what spurred my interest in going to business school. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that, that, you know, there wasn't really anything that I, that I needed to know, like, yes, I knew how to do a DCF, but like, if I told you I'd never done a DCF in our five, like five plus years, like I wouldn't be exaggerating. Um, and for those who don't know finance, a DCF is discounted cash flow. There we go. It is something that a great CFO (laughs) is wonderful at. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, you know, really for me, it felt like, um, another box that I wanted to check to, to feel like I, I deserved a seat at the table. Mm. Do you think that was, do you think it worked looking back? Um, I do, I do. And, and when I, what I said previously, where, um, the big unlock for me, where I, I first thought I had to check all these boxes and then throughout just life experience and, and learning in school, um, I realized that there really wasn't much that I needed to know. It was more about the confidence to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that was, was the moment that it was like, oh, okay. The, the, the box that I actually needed to check was the confidence box, not the education box or not the work experience box. Hmm. And so <clears throat> to build more confidence, you know, does that just go hand in hand, do you think? Or what are some things that you think people can do to build confidence? Yeah. So um there's a few things. One, you know, when I when I set out to to build my career, I really wanted to know how best in class companies worked and op- and operated. You know, both of my parents had smallish businesses. Um, but I wanted to work at like American express and just see how these thousands of people work in concert to a, to an ends. It just, Mm -hmm. it, I didn't make sense to me and I wanted to see it. Turns out it's completely inefficient, but that's a story for another day. (laughs) Um, you know, that to me was, was really important to be able to say, okay, if I grow a business and I have the good fortune of being able to scale it, I know what good or or not 100% great <laughs> looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I went to Guilt Group because I wanted to see what small looked like and I wanted to see what scrappy looked like and I wanted to see what venture back looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another piece of the puzzle that, I think really gave me what I needed to jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to to test and learn without the pressure of you know having people who are who are on my payroll, right? right? I mean, to me, that's always been the greatest pre- pressure. Like there are people who's, um, you know, there are people who are relying on me to be able to pay their rent and to to feed their families, and I can't screw that up. So being able to learn at a different company that was going through a lot of the things that I hoped one day I would, Mm -hmm. um, I felt like was, was an incredible experience, but I also am grateful for that earlier experience at the huge company, because I think that there's a lot that you learn there that is not taught at a smaller company, some formalized training, some, um, you know, things like managing up that's one of the most valuable things that I took away from both Four Seasons and American Express. What do you mean by managing up? Yeah, so even if you are a founder and a CEO, you still have have a board to respond to. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're in the public markets, for example, there are investors who you have to answer to. Um, yeah. And knowing how to position things properly, how to set um, set others up to be successful is just a a lesson that I am so grateful for that. I, had I only been at a scrappy young startup, I never would have, have fully understood. And, you know, it's the bureaucracy that creates the need for it in bigger companies. Um, but it's an incredibly valuable lesson, like how to make your boss look really good. How do you make your boss look really good? Um, so I think it really is about asking good questions, understanding what their goals are, 
understanding what they're trying to achieve in their career. It's not just one way. And being the person, being their right hand and helping them achieve what they need to achieve. If you know that they're presenting to their boss and they're looking for a promotion and they need to show their skills in X, Y, Z, if you can be that person for them, Mm -hmm. um, it is incredibly helpful. Also, how to frame information um, to make it easily digestible to somebody who's context switching all day. Right. Things like that, um, I think are great examples of, of managing up and, and lessons that are hard to, um, hard to learn from a textbook. Absolutely. And at guilt group, that must've been a really interesting experience and time to be there. What were some of the takeaways that you saw from kind of a smaller startup venture backed business that either inspired you to start your own, but also, you know, just the takeaways that you learned and has helped you to be a founder today? Yeah. I mean, guilt did so much for me. And, and one of the, the, things, there's a few things that I've taken away into my daily harvest experience, but I'd say probably the two, um, most helpful pieces of, of experience that I got there were one, um, capital efficiency, right? So guilt was part of e-com like 1.0, I want to call it, Mm -hmm. especially in New York right? Like it it was like Birchbox and Guilt Group. Yeah. (laughs) That was it. Um, and and like Yext, I think was the other big tech. I don't know. Um, but just thinking about the, the environment then and, um, how the VC community really pushed guilt and, and it was not just the VC community, it was the the founders too. and, And the entire setup, it was a sign of the times where it was just like, push growth, build, you know, a team for a year from now, um, that to me, while, you know, it could have been very successful being part, being at guilt for the rise and the fall, Mm. um, just kind of, it, it scarred me a little bit and seeing what happens when you have to lay off half of your team and seeing what happens when, um, you know, things aren't going so well and how, how some of that could have been avoided by, um, more not deliberate, but, um, disciplined, I want to say growth really led me to focus on things like capital efficiency when Mm -hmm. starting daily harvest from day one, because I never wanted to be in that situation again. Mm. Um, and the other lesson that, that I think was incredibly helpful, um, was just about team. So guilt is known in, in at least the New York community as, um, there's so many like alumni from guilt who went on to do amazing things. And I really feel grateful to have been surrounded by incredibly talented people and to have been part of, of like a talent incubator Mm -hmm. and, um, when I think about how I've built daily harvest and what our goals are and how we treat our people and how we try to, how we, uh, invest in, in talent and growth and management skills. Um, I think a lot of it is informed from that incredible environment that was created at guilt and in, in the talent incubator. And it's something that I've tried to recreate, um, at daily harvest. That's awesome. And so when you were, you know, what made you kind of end your time at guilt and what was the next step for you? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of changes going on at the company. Mm -hmm. There was CEO turnover. There was, um, just a lot of things that, that had kind of changed. And, and for me, I felt like I had checked all of my boxes. Mm. So it felt like a good time to, to walk away. And, um, I had been behind the scenes working on daily harvest and, um, you know, just really, really like side hustle ish, Mm -hmm. um, trying to figure out if there was something there, having friends over, um, making a bunch of things that I had stored in my freezer and being like, can you be really honest with me? what is this? T- do you like this? Do you not yeah. like this? Do you think there's something there? 
Um, you know, this is even before the MVP stage. What initially sparked the idea for Daily Harvest? Yeah, so I like to to joke that it was the guilt group pantry. <laughs> um, so there's this like funny story about the guilt group pantry where you could kind of tell how the business was doing based on what was in the pantry. <laughs> um, and you know, we got to during the-, the good times and not some cheaper <laughs> things during the downtimes. Exactly. <laughs> um, and you can imagine how when when the things in the pantry weren't so great, um, the toll that would take on your ability to perform, right? If you're in back-to-back meetings for 10 hours a day mm-hmm. and the only opportunity to eat is to like, you know, grab something in the pantry, whether it's stale birthday cake or trail mix um, in between meetings, just kind of feeling the, the toll that eating poorly had on, on my body, my ability to function at the level that I wanted to function at, um, is what spurred the idea of like, wait a minute, I was a rower. I was an athlete. I know so much about nutrition Mm -hmm. on one hand, on the other hand, my lifestyle doesn't allow me to actually eat that way. So my options are to change my lifestyle. Yeah. Right. And to like, or to just sacrifice how I eat. And I didn't want to do either. So that's where the idea of daily harvest came from. And I was like, I don't know why the food that I want doesn't exist. It made no sense to me. And I started looking at the food options out there and trying to figure out why they were the way that they were. And for me, um, it really comes down to uh, how they are structured. Yeah. Number one, and how they um, how they view success in the public markets, right? So investors reward big food for steady, slow growth and dividends. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what slow, steady growth and dividends mean for food, something that you ingest, right? There's a lot of squeezing margins. And when you think about squeezing margins out of food, it's also squeezing nutrition out of food. Yeah. Um, so you know, where food has gone, where big food has, had, had gone or still is, um, was where the food that was convenient, packaged food, was just terrible for human health. Yeah. And I wanted to create a different story and I wanted to change the paradigm and you know, the collateral damage of that tension between, um, you know, big food that's accessible, but also like the capital structure that keeps it, that, that makes it very unhealthy. There's a lot of collateral damage for the planet. And one of my majors in college, uh, was political science. And the focus that I decided to take was on the politics of food. Mm. So I've always just been incredibly passionate about the food system and it all came together for me in a moment where I was like, what am I doing to myself? Yeah. In that guilt pantry. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. 
Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content, all while cutting support tickets by 50%, simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. That's gomalomo, G-O-M-A-L, omo.com slash steroid CEO. That's wild. So what were, were your first kind of steps from there? You have this idea, you're like, you had some friends over, maybe you're testing out some, you know, recipes, your MVP. How did you, what were the first steps that you decided this is the plan to test this out? Yeah. So after I had a few friends over just to kind of like check my work, like am yeah. I completely nuts? Um, I threw together an MVP and I built a completely rudimentary site and I printed labels from my printer, (laughs) put them on like plastic bags, um, got myself a food handler's license because I legitimately had no idea how to commercially make food. Turns (laughs) out I didn't need one, but it seems like a good idea. Um, and got myself a commercial kitchen in Long Island city. And I did everything from um, assembling the food. I, li- I, I would literally go buy food at Trader Joe's because while I knew I wanted to build all of these direct relationships with farms, I was like, wait, I, I can't do that yet. Um, so I would go and buy incredible ingredients at Trader Joe's and I would then assemble them. And I set a metric for myself, which I think was very important for me because what I wanted to avoid in, in this little MVP experiment of mine was, um, I like to call it the Girl Scout cookie effect or like the wrapping paper effect where, you know, I remembered these times when like my, my mother would bring um, like Girl Scout cookie order forms or like wrapping paper order forms to her office and everybody would feel like they had to buy it. Because I wanted like a stupid yo-yo or something like right. that. Like yeah. Bike, I don't know. Um, and I wanted to make sure that if, if I was going to dive in head first in this business idea, I wanted to make absolutely sure that there was no, like, my friends are feeling bad for me effect. Um, right. So I set a metric and that metric was, um, if I could sell a daily harvest to five times the amount of people that I didn't know than those who I did, then it was time to to jump in and do it. And, um, it happened really quickly. So my background is marketing. All of those jobs that we talked about already, we're all in marketing and branding and business development. I knew how to do that. What I didn't know how to do was make food. And what I didn't know how to, how to do was to create product market fit. So I decided to not focus on the marketing and the branding and the things that I knew I could do. I focused on the things that I, that were going to be hard for me. And the things that like, we're either going to work or, or not like product market fit, like were people going to want this? The food was ugly. It was, the branding was, oh my gosh. Um, it was like painful to look at, but I just, I knew that if I was solving a problem for people, if I was feeling this need that big food kind of left in the market, then it was time to, to jump in. And it happened in eight weeks, which was pretty fast. What exactly happened in eight weeks, getting to launch or to validating? Five times more people that I didn't know buying Daily Harvest than those who I did know. Oh, there you go. So that was kind of the metric that you are using for success. Yes. All right. And so once you kind of hit that and you're like, I think I have something now, what were kind of your, what's your like, you know, go to market strategy or what did you kind of think of from there to take to the next level? 
Yeah. So that was my moment where I was like, all right, there's something here. I'm going to do this full time. I'm not going to focus on anything else. I'm going to dive in head first. Um, but it took me a little while to, to kind of figure out what, how to scale this. How did I, how could I make something that could be a truly big business that was going to change the paradigm, which is what my goal was. And in that period, I did crazy things like hiring my nephews who were at the time, like 15 years old, uh, to deliver food around New York city. Um, and, you know, just kind of figuring out how to get it done while I was figuring, while I was testing and learning, like what would the packaging need to be, to be able to ship via carrier? I mean, there was one company shipping yeah. frozen meat um, and they were shipping it in styrofoam boxes and they were charging like $50 for, for shipping. And I was like, this is not going to work. This, this yeah. does not work. It has to be scalable. It has to be cost efficient and it has to be um, friendly to the environment. I refuse to sell, to send anything in styrofoam. So yeah. I really had to get my hands dirty, figuring out how to create a frozen supply chain that didn't exist. Frozen pick and pack wasn't a thing, right. um, you know, frozen, um, frozen liners that weren't styrofoam were not a thing. Um, mm. shipping on dry ice was unheard of unless you were shipping overnight. So I needed to, to figure all those things out. And it was a lot of testing and learning a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, just like making a lot of mistakes and, and, you know, sending friends boxes of smelly sludge sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but through that experience, while kind of keeping the, the New York business alive to just continue to, to grow buzz and, and grow audience. Um, like figuring out how, how we were going to scale. And the first thing I did was um, once I figured some of those things out was scale to the East coast. Um, then we went to the West coast and then we hit the central, the center of the United States. Wow. And so, I mean, shipping things that are frozen, you must've had to open up distribution on West coast, East coast. You know, how did you kind of think about doing that? You know, and what, what were kind of, what were the <laughs> things that you had to work around? Yeah, well, I made a lot of mistakes there too. Um, so <laughs> one of the one of the most ridiculous moments in all of this was when we decided to open the West Coast. So I was um, nine months pregnant and I could not fly across the country for obvious oh reasons. Right. Um, and I had, to, I had uh, one team member at that time and she flew across the country and was out there waiting for this frozen truck that we had sent cross country. And I have a picture of the truck. It's hilarious. It was a full truck with one pallet on it. <laughs> like we were really creating our own shipping lanes Just here. Just one pallet. Oh, Just one pallet. It's hilarious. Um, and she went out and she called me uh, Sunday night when we were due to ship Monday morning, when we were opening the West Coast. We had already you know, sold out all of our availability. It was amazing. We were so excited. Welcome to the West Coast. Um, you know, our first customers had come through the door and the truck had arrived safely, but we decided because we didn't have a distribution center quite yet, she was going to kind of figure it out while she was over there. Um, she called me and she was like, ah, so remember that freezer truck that we had like parked outside? It died last night. <laughs> So we had this entire oh, no. one pallet truck that had made it all the way across the country. She had gone across the country and the night before we were due to ship, it just didn't, it all melted. It was terrible. Oh no. Uh, yeah. And we ended up shipping everything overnight from New York, which was an incredibly large expense. Yeah. And, you know, certainly not friendly for the environment in any way, shape or form, but, um, you know, we had no choice. For, for that first week. And then we were quickly able to build more inventory and ship it again while we were finding a, uh, figuring out a distribution center. But, um, you know, it was, it was not fun. Yeah. The, the bumps in the road, you know, that you can't expect when you're building a business. Um, what other things happened during those early days, you know, that kind of took you off guard? So many things. Um, we had this one, ridiculous moment where uh we were built 
originally on a, a non-proprietary platform, early days, like just trying to, to pull it together. And we were told by the company that we were too big for them. Hmm. And that if we continued on, that the site was just going to break. <laughs> and, and we were like, okay, like how long do we have? Right. And they're like, we like, you're growing really fast. We give you like two weeks. And we were like, uh, thanks for the notice. Yeah. So the, there was some good timing in there where I had just hired our first, um, engineer engineering lead. And I was like, so how fast can you build a website? Right. <laughs> he was like, um, so I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Nice. Um, he built our entire, I mean, we've obviously built a platform now. It's not just like a front end facing website, but he rebuilt the front end of it in two weeks. And we were able to, to launch it to customers. Um, but it was not smooth. We had this two week period. The minute that they said it was going to break, it broke oh, like wow. the exact revenue point. They said, once you're doing a million dollars a week, I think it was, they were like, this will stop working. And oh, I was like, geez. okay. Or no, I think it was, I think it was a million dollars a month. I can't remember. Um, I'm like, that's a big number. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we were at a million dollars a week. <laughs> Definitely not. Cause it was a long time ago, but we like the site just went haywire. We had customers that we charged 10 times. We had customers that we charged 60 times. Like it was, it had just gone completely haywire. Um, and trying to one manually go in and refund each of our like hundreds or thousands of customers at the time manually, and then having to explain to all of these customers, um, how we had managed to charge them 15 times. It was pretty terrible. We pulled like a 72 hour sprint, just like trying to make it right for everyone. And it was a disaster, but we, we made it through our customers were understanding. We were just really transparent. When it comes to hiring a team, what were some of the first hires that you made and what hiring advice do you have for founders listening, looking to build their teams out? Yeah. So Early team members, this is probably something you've heard before, but, um, you know, all around athletes, jack of all trades types who just really wanted to roll their sleeves up, super passionate about the mission. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it's a very, um, unique profile of, of person. Um, but you know, it is those people who, who can really help you get off the ground because you, in the early days, right? Like you can't hire to my point about guilt group. You can't hire 60 people off the bat unless you raise a ton of money, which, um, back to my point about capital efficiency was never something I wanted to do out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Um, and really, you know, hiring people who could wear multiple hats at one time. Yeah. Um, you know, and then my advice, uh, might be a little unique, but something that may seem very obvious to people who have, have done this before, but not, uh, those who, whose first time at the rodeo it is, <laughs> it was mine is when you hire those people having a conversation, even day one with them about how their roles are going to change as the company scales, mm -hmm. I think is something in hindsight that I really should have done. Um, because as companies grow and scale, it's the same thing as economies, right? Economies yeah. thrive with, with specialization and so do companies and you need to hire experts in certain areas and it can create this really uncomfortable situation with those early people who, you know, you owe everything to, right? but, um, you know, it becomes murky when there's not like a clear path for them. Mm -hmm. So my advice to people is to, to just have that awkward conversation up front and to have it frequently throughout the growth, the growth stage. And it's simple. It is, um, you know, at some point you will have to specialize. Mm -hmm. That is how we will continue to grow and scale as, as a business. I would love to give you the opportunity to choose where that is. I would love for you to try on all of those hats and pick one that fits best. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to continue an open dialogue 
about what experience you need and, and what skills you need to be successful in the role that you are aspiring to, Mm -hmm. because otherwise it just um, can be very challenging and tricky. Right. And so what if someone's like, I want to grow within marketing and I want to be X, Y, Z, you know, but they're not really, uh, they have to do the extra work, right? Because they're not really a specialist yet. So how do you kind of encourage and work with the team members so that they can become specialists? Yeah. Um, and I think it is, it all comes down to communication, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're having that conversation and it is an open talking point that uh, let's, I'm just going to say growth marketing because it's the easiest skill set to, to define, right? Like mm-hmm. you need to be more of an expert at SEO, let's say. Yeah. How can I get you that skill? Okay. So I look in my Rolodex, you look in your Rolodex, let's see if there are classes. Let's, let's like, you know, be creative and see how we can get you that experience. And oftentimes just, um, reaching out to people and saying, Hey, I have this really promising talent on my team that I would, uh, I think could learn a lot from being mentored. Is there somebody on your team who I can connect them with? Mm. Um, it's surprising how often people say yes. That's awesome. That's a pretty cool idea. Um, and with fundraising, I know you've raised over $43 million. That's a huge amount of money. What has your experience been in fundraising? What are some of the challenges that you faced in raising that amount and, um, how did you overcome them? Yeah. So we didn't do a big raise until our series B, our early rounds were very small and that was very deliberate. So I set out the gate early days trying to raise money and it did not go well. I kissed so many frogs and I did not find any princes. Uh, (laughs) It was going from meeting to meeting, having these demoralizing conversations that were everything from, um, you know, can you send this to my wife? I'd like to see if she likes it to, I just don't get it. Like, why wouldn't somebody just drink Jamba juice? Like the people that I was talking to didn't understand it. They didn't get the vision. And, you know, in hindsight, I can say, okay, well, like I shouldn't have taken the meetings if, if they, they couldn't see it um, from the get, but I didn't have enough experience to know that. So um, I decided to bootstrap the business for a few months and to really grow it. But before I did, what I, what I did is, is advice that I give to a lot of people um, is I went back to all of those people who I had talked to who had passed and I, I asked them, what would this have need, needed to have looked like for you to run out the door into the parking lot after me with a check? And yeah. they all answered me and they all gave me their, you know, they all had kind of a different, a different opinion, but there were a lot of similarities hmm. and it was looking at a certain set of metrics and, um, proof points. Mm-hmm. So what I realized is because what I was trying to do was very different. I, I needed to prove objectively that I had something that there was product market fit and that I was, yeah. I was filling a hole and a need in the market. Um, so I then said, thank you very much. And I had my playbook. Um, I knew exactly what I needed to do to prove ob- objectively that daily harvest was solving a problem for, for consumers and that I had a business that was going to grow and scale and thrive. Um, and then I went back to those investors and I said, um, <laughs> I didn't go back to all of them. I went back to the ones that like sort of got it and weren't Right. That's what I liked. Yeah. Um, and I, I said, well, remember, remember me, remember you said that this is exactly what you would need to see to run after me into the parking lot. And I handed it to them on a silver platter. Um, and it became very hard for them to say no at that point. And, um, you know, I ended up finding investors. It wasn't all the, the originals that I had spoken with. I ended up finding people who were very value aligned people who really understood what I was trying to build, got it right away. Um, and, you know, couldn't wait to put their money to work. But for me, I found that I had to have a certain set of, of metrics and proof points that made it objectively a good business to invest in. 
That's super interesting. And to be able to go back to those investors with information that they had kind of already requested, I mean, also speaks volumes, you know, um, to be able to do that and ensure that made a really good impression. Yeah, I, I think it did. And, um, you know, our series A was also really tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, business was growing really quickly and I just didn't have a Rolodex of investors. I, it's just, it, it wasn't my network. Mm-hmm. Um, and my early investors were mostly angels and they, they didn't have a lot of introductions for me. So, um, I kind of went out there into the investing world again and remembered the lessons from that previous experience and started that way. So I started meeting people and in those like coffee chat type conversations, just tried to just tried asking them like, what is the ideal series A company look like? And then I was able to learn a lot about them through the answers to that question. Are they value aligned? Are they going to be okay with me focusing on capital, capital efficiency versus growth at all costs? Mm. Um, you know, the way that I felt like I needed to be disciplined in, in our growth after my experience at Gilt. Um, and those conversations were incredibly telling and I was able to find the right investors. Um, and, it, you know, just kind of replaying that, that same playbook was a great thing to be able to do. But ultimately, what ended up happening is I ended up writing our own term sheet for it. Not, not from a place of ego at all, but from a place of, there were a lot of different folks with a lot of different opinions on what a series A, um, what series A terms should look like. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it couldn't hurt to put it out there and see how people responded to it. And I didn't say like, this is it, take it or leave it. But I said, you know, this, this to me is a term sheet that would make sense. Like, how do you respond to something like this? Like, what do you, how does this sound to you? And I also found that with a term sheet, kind of um, being able to reflect what people say and um, just having really open dialogue served us really well. That's awesome. That's like pretty empowering because I think a lot of founders don't really consider that they could actually create their own term sheet, right? They kind of always look for the investors to do that. So that's pretty cool that you went ahead and, and did that on your own. It wasn't a, a super popular choice, just to be clear, but it worked. <laughs> I'm like, what was the response? Were the yeah. were most investors, I guess, kind of like, okay, you know, or were they like, wait a minute, we're supposed to be evaluating you, your company, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, some were were very turned off by it, um, and then there were a few that were like, no, I think this looks great, um, and you know, maybe we would have gotten there anyway after negotiation, but it was just, um, you know, you said it, it felt very empowering, but also just saved a lot of time just to put it out there and yeah. say like, look, I- I'm, I'm looking for something that is pure vanilla. Um, and, and like, here it is in black and white. This is how everyone wins. This makes sense. And it, it really was that I didn't ask for anything crazy, anything out of the ordinary, but I wanted something that felt fair and, and straightforward. And from a fundraising strategy kind of perspective with founders out there looking to raise capital right now, what kind of advice do you have in kind of, you know, forming around? Yeah. Um, so I think the most important thing is to have value aligned investors. I kind of alluded to it before. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it comes down to communication and putting putting forward, like what's important to you? How do you, how do you understand if your values are aligned, not just listening to people nodding and and kind of trying to get into your round, but really asking hard questions and, and asking how they've behaved in certain situations and then um, double checking (laughs) with references to understand, to understand, because there's, you know, there's always three sides to every story. So, um, you know, I, I think that, that just doing your homework is really important to, to figuring out who is really value aligned, what's important to you as a founder, what's important to you at, as far as being able to scale your company properly. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the rules of engagement that you want? Like we have for our board, I have a, uh, like our own mission and vision and rules of engagement. And it's something that I, I've shared with every board member that has joined. And, you know, it's not that it can't be changed, but it's at least a starting point and it starts really good conversation. 
What are some of the hard questions that you think founders should be asking investors? One of the questions that I've found incredibly helpful is tell me about some companies that you've written off. Mm, that's a good one. Why have like why did you consider them a, a write-off and like what happened um structurally to that relationship? Did you step down from the board? Did you put somebody more junior on the board? Like those are things that people don't usually want to talk about. Right. But- so it's not just companies they've passed on. It's companies they invested in, they worked with, and then they were like, all right, it's not working and they wrote it off kind of thing. Yep. Tell me about a management team that you didn't get along with. Mm. What were some or of the, tell me about the- a decision that was like very controversial? How did, how did you work through that as a board member? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions. Did you get any crazy answers? That you were like, okay, um, you're not going to be on my board. <laughs> so I, I'd say I very rarely got crazy answers, but I often got answers that um, perked up my spidey senses. Yeah. Where I was like, ah, I'm not sure that's exactly how it happened. Yeah. So from a leadership perspective, being a founder involves obviously an incredible amount of persistence. What's, what keeps you going? Do you have like a a morning routine activity or thought process that helps keep you on track? Yeah. Um, no, the answer is no. (laughs) The answer is I feel like I live at the center of a tornado. I have two kids who are small and need a lot of me. Um, and you know, I have a big team who also needs a lot of me. So, you know, if I know that it's very popular to say like, yeah, I, I wake up and I meditate and I, Bin or I go for a walk or and I have my coffee or whatever I do. Um, I survive in the mornings. <laughs> just straight um, up survive. <laughs> straight up survive until my kids are out the door. And you know what what keeps me going is really my team. I've gathered such an amazing, and it's not just me, the team that has been created is filled with such amazing humans that are so passionate about our mission and vision that it's so energizing and hearing from our customers, just writing in every single day, we have a Slack channel that is um, like a customer love Slack channel and just hearing. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. It's, it's nice when you're having a rough day, uh, yeah. <laughs> hearing the ways in which we're changing customers, eating behaviors and health outcomes. Hmm. I just find so energizing. So you know, I, there isn't necessarily a, a routine or a mantra or a practice that gets me, um, you know, up in the morning and through the day, but it really is, um, almost like leaning into the chaos of it all and and not feeling like I need to have those routines. I think early on, I felt like, oh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a founder now I need to have this morning routine and I, I need to have work like life balance. And I need to have all these things like, that was stressing me out more Mm. than just being like, I'm at the center of a tornado and it's great. (laughs) Um, So I think that my form of like self-care has been just leaning into the chaos and, and leaning into that being okay. A bit of surrender. Exactly. Um, And thinking about balance is linear instead of um, all at once. Mm. And what's something you think most people don't know about building a business? There's a lot of people out there who want to start a business. You know, oh, I want to start my own company. I'm going to do it, you know, and they talk about it for a while maybe, or maybe it's just, you know, they're trying to figure out when they should quit their job to just dive in and do it. Yeah. What, what's something you think a lot of people don't really realize about building a business other than obviously it's hard. But. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly hard. Um, and I think that there's there's a lot of like glamour associated with it when mm-hmm. there's nothing glamorous, I can tell you <laughs> about this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that I didn't appreciate in the early days that I've really come to appreciate is how quickly you as a leader, if you find success, need to change what your job is. And I know that like theoretically people are like, oh, it's fun. I can do that. But actually doing it and being really thoughtful and purposeful about like every six months, I I step back and I'm like, okay, what is my job today? How does that need to change? What do what skills do I need? What do I need to to give away? What do I need to to like get? And how do I get there? And how am I um, 
you know, blocking my time so that I'm spending it properly and almost forcing myself to make those changes to keep up with the pace of scale of the business. What are some of those things that you've had to learn um, as you grow? Because, you know, employees have to become specialists, but I think founders also, they have to evolve too um, to keep up with the size of the business and your role changes a lot in those different phases. So what were some of the things and the skill sets or mindsets that you had to have to get to the next level each time? Yeah, I mean, like you go from being the sleeves up, do it all, jack of all trades yourself. Yeah, to what I like to think of as like the down and in phase where the vision is yours and you're the torch carrier and you have to make sure that the company is set up to be able to, to take like, you know, take that vision and, and set it into motion. And I think one of the hardest transitions was from down and in to up and out hmm. where, you know, now I have so many incredible people on my team who help me with that torch carrying and who are, um, you know, way better at what they do than I could ever imagine being. Uh, but being able to like, um, I think it was, I think it's first round who has this great article on like giving away your Legos. Um, but giving away those Legos continuously, like more and more and more to the point where you're like, wait, what do I even do anymore? <laughs> like, what's right. my job? I think going from down and in to up and out was kind of the hardest transition because it's not just, it's not something you can do yourself. You also have to make sure that you have the right team to be able to support it. And you have the right accountability that strings through the organization. And those things are hard to orchestrate. Um, and you need really smart people who have done it before and who can help you get there to be able to make that transition. And then there's also the personal transition where you know you have to be able to let go of a lot of things. And, and um, you know, this thing that that is kind of born out of like your passion and your um vision has to then become co-created by all these incredible people. And it's a hard transition to make. Absolutely. What's next for Daily Harvest? What can you share with us? What's coming up? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much left to do. We are still in early innings. We have um, really big ambitions of completely rethinking the entire food system. So, um, you know, it, it, it starts with the farm and how we're growing our food in a regenerative way to be able to support both the planet and better nutrition for humans and then making that food incredibly convenient for people to eat uh, in a way that fits into modern life. So there is is so much building to do and you can expect us to just continue to lean into that that mission and vision and um, you know continue to take care of food so food can take care of our customers. Awesome. And before we wrap up, what advice do you have? You've already shared so much advice um, about, you know, just building a company, your journey, all the things that you've learned along the way, but what's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or any kind of business operators out there tuning in? Yeah, I think that the most valuable advice I already spoke about a little bit, but it is about value alignment. And it is not only with investors, but it is with board members and it is with team members creating like culture. I don't love that word, but comes from values, right? You want people who look different, who think different, who have different experiences that they bring to the table, but it's so important that the values are aligned. So, you know, I always look for that alignment in investors, in bringing in new team members. It's part of our interview process, really like getting in deep to make sure that everybody is is marching to the same beat, it almost allows you to create a culture that is constantly growing and changing um, and to bring in people with different perspectives as long as you're, you're solid on your values. Awesome. And I'm assuming that maybe a way to filter for those values is to kind of ask questions around how, what examples in their experience or background can um, kind of prove that they've exemplified those values. Is that kind of how you do it or how do you filter for values? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've at this point built a series of questions that we ask um, and we have the same people on the team asking them. We have like an interview committee that goes in and and they have a lot of pattern recognition, like who's answered this question well and who hasn't and, and like 
how have those people performed in the company? And, and there's, there's like a lot of knowledge that's gained there, but it really is about asking the right questions and, and really understanding what those values are and why they exist, um, I think allows you to create questions that really bring that up in, in conversation. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your invaluable advice and uh, your experience and your awesome story in building Daily Harvest. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.